tired of the everyday routine? Ever dream of a life of romantic adventure? Want to get away from it all? We offer you... What's up, guys? Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode number 44. My name is James Scully. Happy Halloween to you. And today, on our third podcast installment in the month of fear, I sit down with illustrator and illustration professor Cheryl Gross for a conversation about the ways in which Cheryl uses fear in her artwork, be it experiences that she's already had in her life, or be it things that she can do to invoke a certain kind of emotion from the viewer themselves as they view her art. Cheryl has a very distinct illustration style that's a high compliment. If you look at her work, you'll remember it immediately. And we get into what it was like for her to grow up in Brooklyn, what it was like for her to decide that she wanted to go back to school to be a teacher, where she's at right now, what the Z factor is, where she's going down the road. And I want to thank Cheryl for giving me her time. Before I go on, as I always say, you can get these podcasts by going to soundcloud.com slash thewallbreakers. You can also find us on iTunes by searching for The Wall Breakers. If you're going to do either of those things, please rate us, review us, tell a friend, tell two friends. Word of mouth spreads conscious conversations like these around. Also, haven't been vocalizing as much lately, but if you can't find us in either of those two locations for some reason, check out thewallbreakers.com. We're on there on thewallbreakers.com, the hub for all things creativity under the Wallbreakers banner. If you're interested also in purchasing some photography around New York City, check out the wallbreakers.pixieset.com. That's my personal photography. I haven't really been publicizing that too much, but I figured let you guys know. I hope that today, Monday, October 31st, you're in the Halloween spirit. You're maybe being a little bit mischievous. You're thinking about what kind of ridiculous outfit or costume should I wear to work today to have a good time. And I hope that things have been going well in your life this month in October. It's important to me to try to deliver these podcasts to you on a timely fashion. I know that sometimes the dates are a little bit incongruous month to month. So I'm going to try to continue to give you guys as much notice as possible. Going forward, I'm going to try to release between two and three podcasts a month and slowly be able to put them on a set schedule. Also, I'm very curious if there's people that you guys would like to hear interviewed please reach out to me. Let me know. Cheryl is a professor at Pratt Institute. I am a graduate of Pratt Institute, but I didn't know Cheryl as a, she was never my professor while I was in college. We met through third parties because of the kinds of networks that we've formed. And so much of life is that way. I'm not going to take up any more time on this open. I want to get right into the body of this podcast. So please stay tuned for Breaking Walls, episode number 44 with Cheryl Gross, right after this brief pause. Hey guys, I'm back on Breaking Walls today, and my guest is Cheryl Gross, who's an illustration professor at Pratt. She's an illustrator. She's a former Brooklynite, now lives in Jersey, but a native daughter of Brooklyn. And with it being October and the month of fear on the Wall Breakers, I wanted to sit and talk with Cheryl about how she uses fear in her work and, you know, things that you've gone through in your life that probably contribute to that as well. 
So welcome, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. As a native Brooklynite, talk to me about growing up in Brooklyn. We were talking a few minutes ago about, you know, your father came from Coney Island, you lived in Ocean Parkway and you lived all over the place. Obviously Brooklyn is a forever evolving and revolving place and a different place to grow up in, but you said you're a baby boomer, so you've lived through uh, the gas crisis, you know, you live in Soho in the 80s, so the cocaine, you know, era. Oh, and I miss the cocaine. Do you? <laughs> <laughs> what does it mean then? What does it mean to you to be someone who comes from Brooklyn? Because that is a thing, right? You go anywhere in the world and you say, I come from Brooklyn, New York, and everybody, for the most part, if you come from a developed country, knows what that means. So to you, when you think of that, what are some things that come to mind? You ever seen the movie Casablanca? Of course, yeah. And uh, I think at one point Humphrey Bogart was talking to one of the Nazis or whatever, um, and uh, the Nazi was like getting tough with him, and Humphrey Bogart said, hey, there are places in New York that you wouldn't even survive. And he was talking (laughs) about like Hell's Kitchen or whatever. And and Brooklyn, to me, is very much like that. Mm -hmm. It's a place where um, you grew up, and, and everybody knew each other, uh, you played stickball, you, uh, you went to school, you, you, you just, uh, it, it's like a starting point for preparing you for the rest of the world. Uh, no matter yeah. where you go, you, you will always have that edge, you will always be able to protect yourself, you will always have that, uh, that toughness, quote-unquote toughness that people, say, that, that people associate New Yorkers with, especially Brooklynites. Now, is that the friction caused by so many different cultures living in such close quarters? Because, you know, you know, like people, when they say about the melting pot of New York, they act like it was like the sound of music, like everybody, but people yeah. didn't like each other. You know, you were different. You came, Scorsese tells this story of growing up in Little Italy, where whatever his address was, his, you know, if his family was from Naples and that building was Naples, if you liked a girl who lived two houses down, but that was the Sicilian building, that was a no-no, you know, you couldn't do that. So like people don't realize that. No, that's exactly the way it is, or the way it was, or maybe still is, I don't know. Uh, yeah, um, I grew up on Ocean Parkway, a um, few, few blocks from the park, Prospect Park, and if you went around the corner, well, m- m- where I lived on Ocean Parkway, it was primarily Jewish, and, um, and, you, and you had uh, people that were interesting, like you had beatniks, you mm-hmm. had... Um, uh, interracial people, uh, interracial couples, you had all kinds of people. And, and it was like, yeah, we all got along for the most part. Um, but if you went around the corner, uh, we had Irish and Italians that didn't like Jews, and they would pick on us, and so therefore we learned how to fight back, and one thing led to another, and then you had like little gang wars, so, you know, but like eventually I think everybody kind of grew out, grew out of it or moved away, uh, but, and, and a lot of it was, um, it was perpetuated by um, just people wanting to be the same. They just liked sameness, and in a place like Brooklyn, that just doesn't exist, and I don't think it ever will exist. I think you will always have pockets, at least pockets in Brooklyn, in, uh, where you have all kinds of different people living together. But do you think, the sameness that people are seeking when they do that. And recently, topically, there was this skit that they did on SNL where Tom Hanks was the host recently. It was, I don't know if you've seen it, it was Black Jeopardy. Yeah, yeah, Black. And Tom Hanks (laughs) plays, it was great, and he plays a redneck, and essentially it's showing, hey, you guys who think you're so different, you're actually very similar to each other. So 
We live now in an era where there's anti-bullying campaigns and, uh, you know, the, someone say the participation award era. And the things that you had to face as a young Jewish girl growing up in Brooklyn, getting bullied and things like that, are there elements of that that are unfortunately good to deal with at a young age because at some point in time, you're gonna, somebody's going to challenge you in life and you have to feel confident enough in who you are to, to not back down? Is that, is that important that the edge that, that you have coming from New York, that it, in some ways it remains because you're going to be able to take that with you? Yes. Okay. I think it's unfortunate that I had to go through it. I think it's unfortunate that people have to go through it. But yes, it's something that I learned how to, uh, I learned how to cope, and I learned survival tactics. Like um, when I was in, I think third grade, they um, it was like uh, the civil rights movement, and um, they started implementing uh, busing mm -hmm. into from. Uh, Schools like uh, from neighborhoods like Red Hook, which were pre predominantly um, black, uh, not that Red Hook was black, but uh, the the uh, projects were black. Uh, so they started busing in uh, kids from there, and they bust them into a middle class neighborhood, you know, a white middle class mm -hmm. neighborhood. So you had that clash immediately. You had the blacks against the whites. It was like, okay, great, and not that we were. Uh, I was I was brought up to. Uh, respect everyone and it didn't matter but when you're confronted with like um, somebody that wants to beat you up <laughs> you and it's just blind it's blind hate you have to learn how to outsmart them and that's what I did mm -hmm. so I learned how to outsmart people and fortunately I was able to take a step back and later in life and assess like different situations work situations personal situations say okay this is what's going on. Let me try to not manipulate, but maneuver through it. Yeah, right. And and so that's that's it's very important. Well, very because important to learn. we're going to have to maneuver through things no matter where we want to go in life, right? There's going to be. I recently watched yeah. this six-part mini documentary on the American mob and the, the Italian mob from the '70s onward, essentially the fall of the mob. Yeah. And I came away from it thinking that you know Giuliani did a really good job of using Rico to. Mm -hmm. bust the mob but you know they, they made it seem on this documentary like destroying the mob rooted out all this corruption in these you know different areas of government or, or industry and I thought to myself well no you just gave it a different face like yeah you destroyed the mob but you didn't destroy corruption you know like so we can say like anti-bullying campaigns and things like that but there's all kinds of passive aggressive behavior that happened in the workplace and things like it's still bullying with a different title, and we're going to have to learn how to outsmart that, right? Because, I don't know, you can't just tell everybody off all the time because then you wind up broke, alone, and nobody wants to deal with you. Yeah. Um, well, also, I think it's interesting. I find it very interesting that um, bullying is somewhat celebrated these days. As in? As in the, the uh, election. And, uh, and just uh, Christie, Governor Christie in, in New Jersey, he's a huge bully. The whole Bridgegate thing, um, you know, and and and, uh, and uh, like a lot of people, really respected him <laughs> for his um, his his obnoxious behavior. And uh, personally, I don't get it, but you know, people like a tough guy, and I think that's also the thing with Trump. They like a tough guy, even though he's not saying anything. 
Well, and that's, I guess, the difference between, say, a male or Guardia, you know, who was tough, but he also had real ideas and real policies and, and set things in place, right? Well, he also had the people's best interests at heart. At least that's what I'm led to believe. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think today uh, it's mostly about money and see how far I can get. Before anybody uncovers my bullshit? or Yeah. <laughs> I think so too. Yeah, yeah, it's also a lot of arrogance, so... You know, no, nobody's gonna touch me because I'm, because I know too much about you. So right. If if you if you screw with me, I will screw with you back tenfold. So it's like, yeah. Your upbringing as a Brooklynite, mm-hmm. if you mind, don't mind saying, your parents. Where where, did, where are they from? What kind of work did your parents do? Um, my father was a furrier. Uh, he owned a small business in uh, Brooklyn. Uh, so I essentially grew up in a in a first store, and uh, his his um, father worked there, and a few of our other relatives worked there, and then we had like these two other women that worked there. There's no relation. Then my mother eventually uh, decided to take over and um, oversee the business because my father wasn't a good businessman; he was more of an artist. Mm-hmm. So that's. That's where I uh, spent a lot of time. Now, your earliest artistic inspiration and memories, they come from your father? No. No, I... No, the, the business was the business. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really see him as an artist until much later in okay. life. Um, no, I, always, I was always drawing. I would sit down and I, I would just figure things out. I remember um, sitting and drawing and... Uh, Mostly drawing in like just shapes and, uh, but I, w- I would, um, I knew where things uh, anatomically were supposed to be. It's like I would draw like a circle for the neck or, or a cylinder for the neck and, and um, so that eventually evolved into like, yeah, I'm an artist. Were your parents always supportive of you becoming a professional artist? No. No, my father wanted me to be a doctor. And my mother, uh, my my sister was uh, emotionally challenged, so my mother was mostly busy with her, mm-hmm. and and who was also an artist, by the way. It turns out that on my mother's side, we have a lot of artists. Interesting. Yeah. So I always thought it was just me and my sister, but it's it's really something that we inherited. Mm-hmm. When you make the decision then that you're gonna, you know, pursue this path as an adult, is there? Do you have to say to yourself? these people that I love, my mother and my father, screw them, I'm going to do what I want to do. Is that, in some ways, how, the, the approach that you have to have? Yeah. Uh, also, uh, when I was growing up, uh, we had satellite schools. Uh, so I, I wound up going to the High School of Art and Design. Um, and the, uh, as, as I said, uh, it was the Civil Rights Movement, and there was a lot of... Uh, there was there was a lot of racism and and craziness happening at that point in time, and and we didn't have the same laws or regulations that we have now. Uh, so my choices for high schools were uh, Erasmus Hall High School, which at one point was a very good high school, but then it was like for shit, and I was not going there. And um, or my mother wanted to send me to private school, but I didn't want to go, so I I ended up going to school in Manhattan, mm-hmm. and that was a lot of fun. It just set me completely on a different path. And it was like, yeah, it was like, screw you. You don't know what you're talking about. I'm going to go do what I want to do. And that's what I did. 
as an artist, um, did you feel growing up that you were different somehow from the norm? Yeah, very much so. Yeah, it, as, as a matter of fact, there were times when like I would express my, like, I remember when I was a kid, uh, I think I was in junior high school, and we had a science teacher, and she went off and she got married. And she took her husband's name, and I remember saying, I don't understand why she took her husband's name, because she already has a name. And this was before uh, people hyphenated their names or you know kept their own names or whatever. And my friends said that I was crazy and stupid. <laughs> and I said, perhaps, but you know, I, I think that it's, you know, she has a right to her own name, so why can't she just keep it? Mm-hmm. So I think at, on some level, I, I kind of was like a higher thinker. Sure. And it, to me, it seems like a lot of artists and uh, not interjecting myself too much in this, but I think we view the world in a certain way and we use art as a tool to express either the frustrations from around us or uh, the things that we're feeling inside that we need to, to get out there. Mm-hmm. And when somebody says that your work is like Dr. Seuss on crack, that's a compliment. It's not a, like, to somebody who says you're crazy, to them that would probably be an insult. You know, how you said I'm different in a way, but you want to be different and you want to take the norm and twist it just a little bit to make people uncomfortable. Well, um, I embrace it. <laughs> That's really it. It's, it's embraced. Um, and I've always been different. And so, yeah, if you're told enough times in your life, throughout your life, like you're different and, and you're crazy or, or something's wrong with you, uh, you, you either believe in and, and, and feel uncomfortable with it or you embrace it. And I chose to embrace it. And I was lucky going to art and design because I found like-minded people. Mm-hmm. And that's why like, uh, I'll have a student or a potential student at Pratt uh, come to me and say, well, why should I go to Pratt? And I'll say, well, it's very expensive. But, and you get a great education, but you're with like-minded people and that's where it's all right. coming, coming together. Because... Yeah, you can go off to like, you know, wherever and get a great education and and be, uh, you know, very successful in your field, in your chosen field. But um, but if you're with like-minded people, you're with people that are just as crazy as you are. Right. And you, you can exchange ideas. So that's what's so important. And what I think you would agree even if we're different, we're still looking for some sort of, some sort of self-acceptance. And, oh, yeah. And... There is no wrong answer as far as that. If that girl says you're crazy, I think that's her wrong answer. But because she felt differently, no, I'll take my husband's name. That's not necessarily wrong, but she should go and hang out with people who think that way as well, and you should go your way, right? Well, yeah, and then times have changed, and then like people were hyphenating their names and, and, and not taking their husband's name, and, and, and that was fine. Mm-hmm. Do you remember a specific point in time or something like that where... You either maybe you were this way from the very beginning, but you stopped feeling bad about being different and decided that, well, I'm going to be me no matter what, and I'm just going to go my own way. Was there like a a specific moment that caused that to happen, or mm, no? I think it was something that I always lived with. Okay. Yeah, I I think that um, yeah we're different, and uh, and that's just where it's at. Um, when I 
started uh, venturing away from my family and, and started making uh, uh, friends, uh, a lot of the people that I saw, sought out were very much like me, but on a different level. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my best friends uh, came from a single home. Uh, her, her mother, uh, her father, uh, her mother threw her father out because he was a, a gambler. Uh, she had two other brothers. Uh, you know, so... Um, so I, I hung out with a lot of people that were um, that that didn't have um, normal at the time uh, white home. picket fence home type thing. Yeah, no, that just didn't exist. You know, I mean, it's funny because I meet people now and, and they'll say, "Oh, I had a great childhood." I said, "Really? <laughs> well, that's nice." And they said, "Well, didn't you?" I said, "Well, you know, I grew up in a very crowded apartment with three other people, and no, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I had times when when it, things were okay, but for the most time, you know, it was, it was tough. But you know, you learn to live with it, and you learn to deal. So, and I think maybe is that part of what f- fuels the inspiration to go to an art school or things like that? Because did you look at the typical way that life was being lived, and you re- and you saw a path, a gray path that you didn't want to go down, and full of things that weren't appealing to you, probably. Yeah, I always wanted to be an artist. I always wanted to go to art school. I always wanted to get away. And um, and at times I did, and at times I came back. And, and I think that's just life. But uh, yeah, no, I, I, I didn't want to, uh, I, didn't wa- I didn't want a normal life. And it's funny because now I, I sit and I think back and I'll say, I couldn't have had a normal life because it, that just wasn't the hand that was dealt to me. Right, yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I had a, a different situation. Um, you know, I had to deal with like different problems, and and um, there was no way that that I could have just gone off and gotten married and had the two point whatever children and and live in the suburbs and you know that just wasn't me. And it, it is boring. And as a Brooklynite or a New Yorker, <laughs> I don't think we're we're wired for that really. You know, if if you if you move to Stanford, Connecticut tomorrow, you'd be looking to leave probably within three weeks because there would be no excitement nothing going on well there's always metro north that's true yeah (laughs) but yeah yeah um yeah i i like the excitement of the city i i i lived uh in the uh, country for eight years and um and that was fun it was nice it was beautiful It, it smelled good uh the people were okay but when i came back to the city i remember like being in bed and listening to the street sounds Mm-hmm. And I said, wow, you know, like, I really miss that. Yeah. I miss the cars honking. I miss the sirens. I miss people screaming on the streets. Leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that, like, it's, it's life. It's like life happening around us, like real life that's not tied to us. It's, you know, we're yeah, just, we're just yeah. boy heirs to it. When you graduated college and entered the work world. Now, you know, I, I've spoken to illustrator friends of mine who are my peers, and they, and they all said, and this was said to them by you guys as professors when they were still in school 10 years ago, your only hope to make it as an illustrator is to be a freelancer, basically, because there are no more staff illustration jobs in the ad world and things like that. But when you were first starting out, that wasn't the case, right? You could get a good job as part of an art department. Mm-hmm. Why did that erode, in your opinion? Well, first off, I didn't graduate college when I was supposed to. Okay. I uh, left school. I went and I had a career. And uh, then I decided to go back to school because I decided at some point I wanted to teach. Mm-hmm. So that's how I ended up at Pratt. Um, 
So why did it erode? Uh, well, again, I think that I th I think that it was just um, expensive for companies to keep staff illustrators. Also, the newspapers were shifting. So, and a lot of uh, the comics and cartoons and whatever were in um, syndication, so they would buy syndicated uh, material. Uh, then again, uh, I think it, it started happening in the 70s or the 80s. I, I think it was the 80s. Um, stock, stock photography and stock illustration started um, eating up the, uh, the system and uh, put a lot of people out of business, um, which is unfortunate. And it really, really ruined uh, a lot of careers. If I may ask you to just clarify for somebody who doesn't understand, when you say syndication, for instance, um, Charles Schultz's Peanuts, it goes natural, it goes national. Right. So that local artist who'd be making his own comic strip doesn't exist then because it's almost like Ted Turner and Cable, you know, breaking through those regional outlets putting, you know, other people at work that way too. Right. I guess, so it made good money for certain people, right? But for the average Joe, there was less opportunity. Yeah, unless you can get syndicated. And I think at that point, uh, you needed some kind of a, I don't know, it wasn't easy, but it was easier then probably than it is now. Um, but yeah, you know, so if, if I were to uh, approach a magazine uh, or a newspaper, um, chances are uh, it, it was uh, very difficult um, to maintain that client because they were off onto another uh, realm, so to speak. Uh, it's like today, like with the internet, uh, everything's on the internet. It's hard to get paid. Uh, it's hard to be hired. Uh, so, so you have to like you know create your own little niche, so to speak. But, um, but yeah, you know, it's, uh, you just do what you got to do. When you say it's hard to get paid, do you mean I have this gig, I've done the work, and now the client doesn't want to pay me? Well, that that I kind of uh, I I uh, solved that problem by uh, using PayPal. Okay. <laughs> using PayPal and insisting on getting money up front. So um, if they decide not to pay me, then they don't get the work, and that's that. Now, how are you instituting that? Is it just because you, Cheryl Gross, have enough of a portfolio and enough contacts where, well, if you don't want to, if you don't want to do this the right way, I'll just work with somebody who does type thing. Is that just leverage? Yeah, no, I, I just don't work with them. Yeah, you know, I'll somebody approaches me and I'll say, okay, this is what's going to cost. This is, you know, the time frame. Blah blah blah. You get X amount of changes, and that's it. And and unless I know them, um, I insist on money up front. Mm -hmm. And do you find that people, your clients, are usually pretty good about adhering to your asks? Yeah, um, yeah. Because uh, again, I, I worked uh, I worked with a lot of financial institutions, and they were always good at paying. Um, um, Who's not good at paying? Uh, people that um, have small businesses, okay, um, and hardly any budget. I I worked for one guy. He was uh, an independent filmmaker, and 
he wanted me to do a poster and I was doing the poster and in the middle of the job he just said um, I can't pay you <laughs> I said okay um, stop work I stopped work and I took the work that I did for him and I gave it to somebody else I started making use of the, the material in, in other ways I, I did the same thing with this one guy he was a neighbor of mine uh, he said okay let's we were supposed to like you know do this thing together uh, and uh, he just couldn't sell the idea and I said okay well if you can't sell the idea then I'm going to go and, and have it published somewhere else and that's what I did so I made the money and he was cut out so I think that uh, if you're working for people that are like a little larger and that have the budget then, then that's good but um, usually like little guys at this point uh, unless they have the money unless they really want the work they're not really all that great to work for is there for you what's the now you say you know certain money up front which I guess also functions as a kill fee if necessary is there a certain amount of fair time between completion of job and the rest of the payment received oh yeah which for you is how long um, it depends on what I'm doing Okay. Uh, if it's something that's really labor intensive, I will give them a ballpark, and I also tell them that uh, if you are going to supply uh, materials, then supply them, and by the time I get them to, uh, you know, then I'll start working on the job, I'll start showing them progress and sketches and whatever, approvals and, you know, so usually uh, a job will take about... If it's a black and white, pen and ink, something like that, it'll take like a few days at most. Mm -hmm. yeah, and that's only if there are no changes involved. Right. I, I did a job recently where I did like 13 uh, drawings, and I think there was only one change that the guy wanted. And he was a great client. So. Now, do you attribute any of that to... And I know we're, we're talking mostly business right now, but mm -hmm. do you attribute any of that to you just knowing your craft and knowing your audience so you're you know how to get it done without there being minimal changes or is that also sometimes good clients to work it's, it's a balance there I guess as well right because it's good clients to work with who are open to your suggestions well yeah you know um, I know what I'm doing and uh, and it also depends on the client like sometimes people like to micromanage mm -hmm. and uh, there was something recently on the internet. Um, I think Toulouse-Lautrec poster um, uh, had, uh, and then there was there's a Toulouse-Lautrec poster, and then there was like a, a picture of a kitten, mm -hmm. <laughs> and it was like I think the caption read, uh, "What clients do to um, uh, micromanage uh, whatever, you know, the job, uh, their input," and, and it was like. It, it 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 was it was just really funny. It was like okay, you know, uh, cat looks angry. <laughs> Make cat cuter, you know. Make it look like a kitten. Yeah, you know, it's a, it's like yeah, you know. It's like usually like people come to you and they they know what they want, even though they say they don't know what they want. Mm -hmm. And usually, what they want is not necessarily what you're going to give them. Right. I I did another job where um, it involved a a baby that was. Um, uh, born out of um, a bathtub, it was called Tub, and 
it, it was a horror film and it was great and uh, and so my job was to design the baby and make him as disgusting as possible and I did and uh, the with input from the client uh, it wound up looking in my opinion like E.T. and I was like ugh man this is so embarrassing <laughs> but like what are you going to do and that's to, to you that's something that you do it you don't show it in your portfolio and you take the money and move on or well I, I uh, the initial um, sketch that I landed the job I showed that in my portfolio right but the finished um model of the baby it was like nah this it looks so much like et it was it was such a shame you know because i i had like this this perfect horror story and uh character and and it just he just uh said no you know i i asked i asked a few other people and they said no it should look like this it should be like i said well you know it's like looks like et Yes. Oh, you think so? I said, yeah, I know so. I was always taught at college that it's okay to show a sketch in your portfolio as opposed to the final piece because, like you're saying, regardless of this person's opinion or that person's opinion, it's your portfolio, so you got to put what you want in there because that's what you're going to feel most comfortable with. Sure. And so now I'm assuming that that's something you tell your students and I think probably will help give them confidence in the end, right? Because if you're always waiting for someone else's approval to say this is good, then where are you going to get? I always make them show me sketches. Okay. And if they don't show me sketches, I yell at them. Why is that? Because I want to see what they're thinking, and I, and I want to see uh, if it, something needs improvement. It's And nine times out of ten, it, things need to be redesigned, or, or the colors need to be changed, or the character needs to be facing a different way. Um, so it's just helpful hmm. and a lot of times like uh, the student will deviate from the sketch and they'll just do whatever they want to do anyway or they'll take advice from one of their friends who isn't right you know because I, I know what I'm looking at and I know what I want and the assignment is something that I came up with so therefore I'm the client and the art director and uh, but a lot of times like I'll see sketches and I'll say you know I don't even want you to go to the finish I make them go to the finish anyway but I'll say, no, I don't want you to go to the finish. I, I, I really like the sketch. The sketch is, like, complete. So, you know, I make them keep the sketch as well. Or I tell them to keep I don't make them do anything. But. Right. What, when you decided that you wanted to become a teacher, why? So what went into that thinking? Well, I wanted to give something back. Okay. I felt that um, I was getting older. Um, I had a lot to say, and I wanted to do something for the common good. Um, I, I'm not a, a doctor, or, or and I'm not about to uh, go off to war and you know fight for the country. <laughs> so you know, I figured if I could like help people in this way, um, it would be okay. You know, it would be fun, and uh, I also enjoy it. I, I really like my students. And I like teaching. And it's a two-way relationship, too, right? I mean, Absolutely. you're learning from them. You're staying connected. I learn a great deal from my students. I don't know if they know how much I learn from them, but I, I learn a great deal. And, um, and also, I come from a different generation. 
for them, they they have a whole different mindset. They 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 are tattooed. Um, but they're not just tattooed. They're really tattooed, and um, they they listen to different music, and and they have a whole different way of looking at the world. Whereas I don't come from that. Um, but it doesn't mean that I can't be open to it. Right. And uh, it's like people say, oh, I think tattoos are ugly. I said, no, I think they're great, you know, because it's body art. Mm-hmm. And when I was growing up, tattooing in New York was illegal. Right. Absolutely. Now it's not. Now it's like all the rage. And it's amazing to me. It, it's just, uh, I, I, uh, that's something that I embrace. I, I really like uh, young, young thinking or that type of, uh, that type of uh, lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think also, no matter how old we are, I I believe, like I still feel like a kid, and I've talked to my mother about that, and I oh, said, yeah. you know, as a kid, you think when you get sent to bed or something, and you don't want to go, and you think someday I'll be an adult. Yeah. And you think you're just going to wake up one day and you're going to be an adult. And it's like, well, no, actually, I have lived every moment of time between then and now. And and suddenly one day I was paying bills and I had to go to work. And it wasn't like, you know, I, I stepped through a portal and came out. Yeah, and had that happen. Right, exactly. <laughs> so to stay connected to the younger generation keeps those the lines with, you know, communication going. So now you're pulling from things you learned as a child, other generations and things like that. Mm-hmm. How does that, how, you said that they've taught you a lot, your students. Are there specific things that come to mind that have influenced your work that if you had weren't a teacher, I mean, of course, you go down another path then, but are there things that you say, you know, oh, I know that because of these things that I learned from my students. Are there specific things that you can recall? Um, yeah, yeah, just uh, how do you use social media? Um, I personally, uh, I need help with that mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Um, how how to uh, deal with um, just acceptance, acceptance in um, on, on every level, um, transgender. What gets me about working at Pratt. And, and I love this, is the fact that we have a transgender community and it's embraced and it's wonderful. Um, so I have learned to be more open-minded. Not that I wasn't before. It's just, again, you know, it, it's, it's almost foreign mm-hmm. in a sense. So, um, yeah. Is that what makes some of your peers um, who are more close-minded so close-minded to any I mean well I, I'd like to think that you know let's say homosexual in 2016 that's less of a big deal than it was 10 years ago 20 years ago 30 years ago etc and now transgender is something you know as in, in some ways of the culture it's as an outsider one would say as an offshoot even though somebody on the inside might disagree is it just that it's foreign is that what makes people close-minded I don't understand this so it must be bad yeah, I guess so. I, I, I try not to um, uh, hang out with people like that. I, uh, unless, of course, there's store owners or whatever, and, and it's like I'm, I'm just walking in there to, to buy something for my dog or whatever. Um, 
yeah, I, I don't usually um, um, hang out with people that, that are close-minded. You know, I, I, would, I, would, I would hope that most of my friends, if not everybody, uh, were tolerant in every way, shape, and form. Sure. But I also think your art, it's in some ways designed to make those closed-minded people uncomfortable on purpose where you know to me when I when I look through your work and, and I and you know I'm, I'm familiar with it there are a lot of Americana influences in there you know it's not yeah. it's not totally devoid of that at all there's a lot of American folk that I see in there but you know I mentioned an illustrator Stephen Gamble mm-hmm. um, who you know he was he was illustrating books like Haunted you know children's books that were about hauntings but the kinds of pe- uh, pencil and graphite illustrations he were doing were very uncomfortable for a little kid to look through. It was like really scary as a kid. And I could see your work being similar for an adult in today. Um, how do you approach that then? When, you're, when you think of your own style, and you do have a style, and I'm sure it's, it's evolved over time. And What are you trying to accomplish when you when you create, let's say, the Z-Factor, the illustration specifically in the Z-Factor, what's the mindset? How, how do you want the viewer to react? What do you want them to take away from it? Well, um, the Z-Factor is telling a story of something that was an accident and, um, and became the norm. And it was painful and uncomfortable for all concerned within the story. Mm-hmm. And it is a metaphor uh, for the world that we live in today. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and the world that we live in today is very uncomfortable. Um, unless, of course, you live in a gilded cage or whatever, and even right. still it's uncomfortable. Uh, so uh, I want people to uh, react to it. It's, it's kind of like that, that old like illustration um, uh, theory, like you know, your 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 audience has the attention span of like maybe two and a half seconds. And you got to grab them, and then like once you grab them, then they have to go back to the source and read the story, see the movie, uh, play the game, whatever. And um, so that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to capture everybody or my viewer within that two and a half second, maybe now even less. And time frame, and then like bring them back and say, okay, now read the book and see how it pertains to the world in which we live today. Mm-hmm. So that's basically it. I guess you would agree also, differences make us think, right? So you want to take something and turn it just slightly on its head. Is there some also a, um, an understanding of marketing on your part where you think, well, I can't go so far off the deep end that I lose everybody right off the beginning. Like, there has to be some tie into familiarity in order to corrupt it. Is that a conscious thing as well? Um, sometimes. Uh, and then I, I go back to, uh, well, uh, once I started uh, this project, and it seems to be one of these lifelong projects, um, uh, when I started it, I, I had my doubts, and but... The reaction immediately was positive, so I decided to stick with that. And every time I start wavering, you know, like, oh, maybe I should be a little more conservative. Maybe I should uh, not 
put a, a blowhole on somebody's back. Maybe I should not stick a wheel in somebody's head, you know, or maybe I should um, not talk about uh, how how my people in, in the books reproduce or whatever. Um, maybe I shouldn't do that. And then I said, you know what? Um, it doesn't matter because if you like it, you'll buy it. If you don't like it, you won't, you won't buy it. You won't read it, and that's okay. In talking about what you just said, when we think about fear, if you were to change your approach, that's fear of like something like someone that doesn't exist. It only exists in theory. Like that person might not like it, but that's not a, your friend sitting next to you explaining why they feel uncomfortable, right? I've had people feel really uncomfortable, and 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 were not afraid to tell me. I I remember I had this this one friend. We're not friends anymore, <laughs> and she said. You worried me. And I said, I said, well, what are you talking about? And she said, well, look what you're doing. And I said, yeah, so. I said, well, what about it makes you feel uncomfortable? I said, you need to come to terms with however you're, you're dealing with whatever I'm doing because you're being, you're being judgmental and, and, and you don't know what you're talking about because you're just looking at it at, at face value. And... If I'm going to have people look at it at face value, then fine. So the ones that are made to feel nervous, then they're made to feel nervous. And that's just too bad. Um, and, and then I, like, I, I get a little defensive, but then again I say to myself, okay, you know, if I make people uncomfortable, then that's just the way it is. I mean, cubism made people feel uncomfortable. Impressionism made people feel uncomfortable. And that was nowhere near what I'm doing. I mean, it was radical at the time. And that was great. Uh, and it was progress. So, you know, hopefully uh, my work is uh, progressive enough for uh, people to eventually say, okay, well, this is, you know, brilliant whenever it existed. And, and that's good. Well, I guess also if you think about the opposite of uncomfortable is comfortable. Yeah. And what has ever been what growth occurs when, when you're comfortable? Now I guess you can grow when you're comfortable, but you know they say like, sure. uh, comfort's the quickest way to stagnancy. You know, like that's something I've heard before oh, really? in some ways. <laughs> Is the Z Factor the longest continuous project that you've ever worked on in your whole career? I would say yes, and I think that it started when I was very, 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 very young, and I think it's something that I had put aside. Or, yeah, I put it aside to learn other things, and then I came back to it in 2007. Uh, I was reintroduced to this sort of art form, uh, basically by accident, because it was something that like I always used to doodle, and uh, it never really took seriously because I was like trying to be a, a, a serious painter, mm -hmm. <laughs> and. Um, I had a professor say to me, you know, you, you, you do a lot of things and you do a lot of things well. He said, but I want to see you do something that's completely you, totally you. And that's how the Z Factor came about. And that's how all the, the drawings came about. Because it started with the drawings. Mm -hmm. And then it just evolved into a uh, thesis and a term paper and all that, you know. So. so you didn't have the story written. You drew it. And well, the story was up here somewhere, obviously, in the mind. Somewhere. Right. <laughs> what were you exercising then to put this on paper like that? If it was from such a young age that you've had it in you. It, it was just something that I, 
well, I, I was always drawing when I was a kid. Uh, I always loved pen and ink. Um, and I was always doodling. And uh, so it's just something that I would, I would do cartoons and, and uh, just work that way. And, um, and so I, it, it, was, it was always, it was, always there it just uh the the seriousness uh of the actual art form that it has become was put on hold until recently do you worry um i saw a ted talk once with a woman named elizabeth gilbert who wrote the book eat pray love yes i know (laughs) Um, we we lived in the same town okay yeah i met uh liz gilbert a few times and uh i have stories about her but (laughs) (laughs) but she's cool yeah on that ted talk she talked about um knowing that you might have completed your magnum opus and you're like 40 or whatever and it's like well how do you make sure you're not drinking gin at seven in the morning like hemingway then after that how do you move on how is that a fear of yours that this has to be ongoing, the Z Factor, because where do you go when it's done? Is there a worry of that in your mind? Well, no, because it's not done. And I don't think it's going to be done for a while. And now you're saying that, truthfully, it's not done. It's not that you're, gonna, you're telling yourself that so that you can keep it going. It's that there's no, still it's things just that not, are, No, I feel that it's not done. I mean, it's... There, it's um, it, it, it's it's like a play. It's like it's several several acts. It's it's uh, it's like a building. It's like you know, different stories, different tiers. You know, it, it's several. It, it's um, it's um, it's multifaceted. It, it it goes off into other directions. Um, you know, there there are sub stories within the story within the story, and then there are different characters, uh, and so. It could go on forever, and it doesn't have to go on forever. It can end. So, uh, and and once it does, if it does, then there's always something else to do. Yeah. I mean, right. I can go off and, and travel for several years, and then come back and say, okay, now I'm going to do this or whatever. You know, when I think when you're a creative person and you just have that need to create, it's like a calling in life. So, even though like you may not work for a while. Or you might switch styles, or you might grow in a different direction, or whatever. I think that it's something that that you, I know for me, I always need to do. Just to create in general. Just There's to create, an and, and it, whether it's writing or drawing, mostly drawing and mostly painting, and and uh, and yeah, and just writing about it. Um, it it makes things, uh, it it makes life um, a little more clear. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it it. it, it it keeps me in the direction where where and, and focused. And somebody has to ask the questions, right? There's got to be someone in, in the world, even if like if this is a question, you're asking it by putting it on paper so that people can. You're making people think. You want the, to people to have the discussion. And right. Now you were a professor at Pratt. Mm-hmm. I went to Pratt, but I never I never I was an illustrator, so I didn't have you in any courses. And. I knew who you were in terms of like visually seeing you in the comedy halls, but my friends and peers that took you were incredibly complimentary of your teaching style for the entire time that you know I've I've known of your existence. Is there a higher compliment really that you can, that as a professor, you can feel other than a student telling somebody else how much they learn from your class? And I feel like that's why you wanted to teach them. 
you're talking about these questions and you, you said you wanted to give back. And I think some of that is probably also, and maybe I'm interjecting myself too much here, but part of the reason why you wanted to give back was because you saw things being done shitty in some aspect of it. And you said, well, I know the right way and I've got to teach the, you know, the other generations the right way. So, that some, so how are they going to know if nobody teaches them? Do you agree with that? Well, first off, that's a very high compliment. Oh, thank you. So, so thank you very much. Um, yeah, uh, I, when I went back to school, I saw the way uh, some of my teachers were teaching, and I would say to myself, well, how, how, do, you, uh, how do you paint that way? Or, or how, how do you implement that, that, that idea? I mean, you know, and they just weren't, they were just like, okay, just do it. And so, okay, so you would do it, and you'd either do it successfully, or you'd fall on your face and, and, uh, and take the hit. So I just felt that uh, the more information I could give somebody, the less they'd fall on their face, and the more they would hopefully understand uh, what direction they could go in. Because that's what you're doing. You're, you're steering them. You're right. steering, like, like Obama steers a ship. You're steering the, the other generation as a ship, and hopefully they'll, they'll get there eventually. Well, I think even in that metaphor, you're steering them out of the harbor into an ocean, right? And you're just giving them the foundation to sail, and then they're gonna go wherever they're meant to go, but you give them that, the tree branches or the tree roots to grow in the way they wanna grow. You mentioned earlier about the possibility of the movement towards university teaching at Pratt, or mm -hmm. when you say university, you know, like a Yale or a Harvard. The other day, somebody was telling me that this could be totally apocryphal, mm -hmm. but a lot of lectures at Harvard, students don't go to the class. They record all the lectures and give it to the students, and the students then play it back at 1.5 speed to digest it even faster so that they can go on with their studies. Mm -hmm. You can't teach art that way, I don't think. Now, I didn't go to Yale or Harvard, so I don't know what the courses that are being taught are, but I just... I'm not saying that that's what would happen, but the only way that I think you could teach creative arts is hands-on, you know, through perspectives, through communication. That's, art is the art of communication. My degree is in communications design, not graphic design, because that's what graphic design really is, communication. Yeah. It worries me that people in charge have their head up their asses. And once again, it goes back to, but if you're an 18-year-old kid going to school, you don't have enough life experience to know any better, but if you're taught the wrong way. Well, is it the wrong way? Or is it the new way? I don't know. See? Right. That's, that's the question that I'm asking. Uh, it's like you take autism, for instance. We have a lot of people that are autistic. So what does that make them? Is it slowly making them part of the norm? Are we going to be divided? People that think this way and then people that think that way? I hope not. Well, think about it. Right. Yeah. So... Does that make them any less important? Does that make it, them any less smart? Or what, are they smart in different ways? Um, maybe they need to find a different way to function because they can't function in our world, or you know. So I, I don't know if. Uh, and, and also, when you take that that example of Harvard, Harvard or Yale, and uh, students are being fed information at a higher speed, is that because of the internet? Is that because of computers? Is that because of cell phones? Is that because our attention spans are, are not as long as they used to be? I felt my attention span shrink over... I feel like I had a longer attention span as a 15-year-old than I do as a 30-year-old. Me too. That's bad. 
there are times where I force myself to, mm-hmm. I have to disconnect from all means of, and I don't, and I'm not even an over user of technology. I'm just, I'm normal. There, how many times am I walking in a subway station and the majority of the people are looking down as they're walking at their phone? Or I was walking behind a guy in the street the other day who I had to step around him and I realized as I went past him, he was walking and watching television on his phone at the same time. And it reminds me of my grandmother calling it the boob tube, you know, yeah. TV's the boob tube. And yeah. I said to my, it finally like clicked in after all these years. And I said, it really is the boob tube. You could have stepped, you could have stepped in an open manhole and you'd be dead right now. All because you were too busy watching television as you were walking. Anyway, that's a rant, but. No, but you're right. Well, because, okay, we're in New York City, right? Right. I left New York in 2014. I didn't know I would be coming back. Serendipity brought me back very quickly, and it also brought me back with a renewed sense of love for the place I grew up. So, as a funny story, I was giving, in March, I was giving this talk to uh, some UK high school students. And when I left, it was down in Lower Manhattan. And it was a cold, clear day. And I said, all right, I'll walk to uh, South Street, and then I'll just head over to Whitehall to take the R train back. And it was beautiful out, clear, and it was like shots of the harbor, and I was snapping photos as I was walking by. And everybody was just going about their business or whatever. And then there were these two teenage girls who were like this, what I assume was taking photos of the, of the harbor. But as I walked by, I realized they were just taking selfies. Like, but the, and I just thought to myself, like, just turn the camera around. Look, look around. Stop looking inward. Look outward. Look at, as an artist, look how much there is to pull from around here, like inspiration-wise. But you said... Yeah. Sorry. Uh, no, but you're right. Well, think about it. Is there an expiration point then to, as a teacher? You know, you're saying the students teach me so much, they help keep me current. Do you worry that there comes a point where you'll no longer be able to relate because the set of circumstances that somebody grew up with are so vastly different from yours that unless you walked a mile in their shoes, you wouldn't know? I think that I have to adapt to their behavior and their environment because it's, it's different than mine it's different than what i know uh yeah you know it's, it's like uh i have a policy in my class now no texting during class you can text on the breaks don't text during class because i was finding that like i'm giving a, a critique and everybody's texting I'm like uh no i don't think so you know i mean this is rude yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And then they, they keep they keep doing it. And it's like, uh, no. So I have the policy, you know, it's like, stay off your phone. And if I catch you on your phone, your grade's going to take a hit. Right. And that's what they understand. If that's what you understand, then fine. You know. Unfortunately. Yeah. You know, so I think that eventually uh, it might reach an expiration point. <laughs> I don't know. You know, I, I'm going to like try to hang in as long as I can. It's, it's interesting. Like I was driving uh, fairly recently and, and I was driving down Broadway towards um, a city hall. This young woman stepped out in front of my car on her phone, and I almost hit her. And I slammed on the brakes, and I hit the horn, and she got pissed off at me, and she started yelling at me. And I said, you know, this is highly unfortunate because I almost killed her. And she thinks that's your fault. Yeah. She was not in the crosswalk, and she was coming out between cars. So uh, that's really dangerous. And she was not paying attention, and she was just assuming that she could just walk. In New York City? <laughs> yeah, downtown, crowded street. And I'm like, whoa, and I almost killed her. And she's like, hey, and I'm like, okay, and goodbye. And I just went around her and kept going. And 
It was like, you dumb bitch, you know? <laughs> it's like, wake up. Yeah, right? Well, that's a wake up. I'd like to think I'm still, you know, a kid in a lot of ways, but I feel... Yeah, you I, are. I, 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 thank <laughs> yeah, you. Yeah. I'm glad I am. But I also, you know, I find myself saying similar things to people all the time. Wake yeah. the fuck up. That's like what I want to tell people. I don't know if it was just my personal upbringing or whatever, but if you're in New York City, have your head on a swivel. You need to have your head on a swivel. Not like... Cause by choice, like, no, you better have your head on a swivel. I heard a story of a woman who was killed because she was texting and she, the elevator doors opened, she stepped in, but the elevator wasn't there and she fell down the shaft. Like, uh, I think that was uh, Young and Rubicon or something like that. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, was, I think it was that, I'm not sure. Oh well. <laughs> right, right, it's population control in a new way. Yeah. Okay, with all of that being said, mm-hmm. how do you stay present today in the sense that, how are you, you know, you've got a lot of life experience, but it's still New York City. It's a hard financial climate to live in for no matter, yeah. unless you are so wealthy that you really are above it. You could be making a million dollars a year and be broke at this point. Sure. How do you not get trampled even mentally by that kind of lifestyle? Because it seems like New York's always been that way in a lot of ways. What are some things that you try to take into account as you live each day? And how do you set up those fail safes for yourself to make sure if I'm going too much one way, how do I pull myself back to the middle? Well, I, I have a dog, okay? And the dog keeps me present mm-hmm. because he's always in need. And he's not a pain in the ass or anything. He just is a dog and he needs to be walked, he needs to be fed, he needs to be paid attention to. Yeah, he knows nothing about texting. Well, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he doesn't like when I take his picture. I don't understand why. Uh, so, uh, so I have the dog. I also have learned through experience and through like hard times that where I am now is a good place to be. Hasn't always been that way. I've, I've had times when it's like, uh, I really don't want to be here. I don't want to do this. I, you know, I was miserable, but somehow I pulled myself out of it, which was great. And, uh, and I've grown older and I've, I've been doing yoga, which also keeps me in, in a good place, you know, I'm able to um, reflect while I'm doing it. I, it's meditative. It's, uh, it, it keeps you present. It keeps you yeah. in the moment. And, um, and I, I'm the type of person like, okay, you know, I've been there, done that now. Like, what's happening like 10 years from now? I, I am like way into the future, which is not the best place to be sometimes, but what are you going to do? So I think just pausing and taking the time and and just stopping and reflecting that helps me focus and be appreciative where i am of right yourself now. right myself and actually my environment it's like i live in jersey city and i really like it right now i'm like with you here in brooklyn and i really like it you know i'm i'm okay where i'm at uh if i were in a place like syria or whatever i don't know if i'd like it but <laughs> there are other places to be that aren't as comfortable mm-hmm. as here I, I think it's mostly about the journey rather than like the outcome or or whatever is going on and um, you know also it's like you know you go through extreme highs and extreme lows you can't keep you can't be at that high all the time even though like sometimes I would like to be you know yeah I want to have like um, 10 shows lined up I want to have this I want to have that but you can't you need to you need periods where you have to rest mm-hmm. and that's what I've learned yeah that you need to rest you need to reflect you need to chill you need to meditate a few months ago, I was watching, I was feeling frustrated about my current place in the world. 
And uh, some of that was feeling like there, I still had bad habits, internal habits that were holding me back for myself that were keeping me isolated and I didn't know how, like I, I was essentially asked the universe, like why am I still going through this? Like why haven't I figured out the solution yet? And I made a cup of coffee and I sat down and I put on an episode of Bob Ross' Joy Painting. Yeah. And he was painting the mountain. And he said, and remember, next to every highlight, you need shadow. Because what are our highlights without our shadows? Yeah. And it like clicked in and I was sitting there and I said, you know, Bob Ross, all those years that you were, had this PBS show, you were just like doing light work. You were painting, but you were, doing, you were teaching people consciousness as you were going here from your years of like being in Alaska. Or, or, and it like, I was like, oh, thank you, Bob Ross. Like, it, it's true. So you need those low points, right? Because without it, what? Yeah, without it, you're, you're like a, a live wire. Mm-hmm. And that's what happens. You know, it's like when you see people when they're on like continuous highs, they, they eventually start losing it. It's like they, they start imploding. Because you got to be grounded, right? There's no balance there. Right. So you have to stop and reflect and say, okay, and then you can get back onto it or, or whatever. Now, you recently had a show in September. You just mentioned um, about, you know, wanting to have 10 shows lined up and things like that. It's not always possible. Yeah. So what's going on right now? Like, what do you have coming up? Mm, what? Um, nothing. I have nothing coming up uh, that's tangible. Um, right now, I'm applying for grants. I'm looking into uh, residencies, uh, local residencies, because I, I don't want to travel right now. It's not that I don't want to travel, it's I can't travel. Because uh, uh, the last time I traveled for, I had a residency in Germany and that was for three months, so I was able to take a sabbatical. I can't take another sabbatical for like another six years, so if I want to go off on another journey like that, which would be great, because I'd love to do it, uh, I can't, you know, without, right, without losing your job. Without, yeah, I don't want to lose a job. So, um, so right now I'm at a point where it's, I'm, I'm, uh, uh, doing more work. I'm, I'm uh, replenishing my supply of work. Uh, I'm, I'm working on, I'm working, I'm, um, I'm working and I'm uh, putting feelers out there. And like I said, I, I applied for several grants. I've, I've applied for several shows. Um, and, and I'm looking into like a few residencies. You know, it's, it's mostly working. It's mostly about the work right now. And uh, are there periods of time of the year, like is the winter a slow season for galleries because of snow and people, you know, it's harder to get, are there, is that a thing? August is usually uh, slow for galleries because they usually close what they used to close in August. Is that because Italy takes off the month of August or is that like I guess, I guess <laughs> yeah. so, I guess so. Yeah, everybody takes off in August and they, yeah. go, they go away. Yeah. Um, in the wintertime, things slow down, but you know, if you have a show schedule, then you do your show. Right. Uh, hopefully, people will come. My last show, uh, it was uh, it could, it could have been a little more well attended, only because of the bombs that went off in uh, mm -hmm. the terrorist attacks in Chelsea. Yeah. <laughs> so right. It was like, it was like that weekend. Yeah. <laughs> and I I didn't hear about it until like well after you know it happened. I was like, oh shit. You know? <laughs> But, but that's what happened. That's, that's what you happened. know, oh well. Yeah. You know, what are you going to do? Well, yeah, thank yeah. God, you know, it, it could have been worse. So. Right, yeah. What would you like to tell an audience? Like, what are you looking to plug today? Not too much. The Z Factor? Yeah, the Z Factor. You know, buy the book, see the movie, uh, watch the play. You know? mm -hmm. <laughs> Just look out for it. Uh, I have a blog that I, uh, which is uh, on WordPress, Z Factor 1. And also, Greetings from Carpland. 
also on WordPress. Uh, again, I'm uh, the, the second book, Readings from Carpland, is in the process of being edited right now. That is hopefully going to be published at a later date, um, and hopefully uh, there'll be a show to accompany it, mm -hmm. or the show will come first, and then it's all in the planning stages right now. And, and again, you know, we see, you know, we'll see. Nothing's cemented, so we'll just see how things go. If people wanted to reach out to you on social media, do you have a Facebook fan page? Uh, yeah, I have greetings from Carpland. I'll include all these as links, by the way. And I have, uh, you know, Cheryl Gross, 144, I think I am. Okay. Uh, that's uh, Facebook. Uh, I have Twitter, Cheryl Gross. Or they can just email me. It's cmmgross at gmail.com. So if they want to, you know, send me some trashy emails, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I am in Berlin. Well, not in Berlin. The Zebra Poetry Film Festival, I have an animation that is playing this weekend. Probably oh, tonight. Wow. I think tonight. Uh, it's in uh, the town of Munster in Germany. Uh, and I wasn't able to go. But I'm here, and if you happen to be in Germany, then that would be great. Yeah, absolutely. If you're not in Germany, then that's still great. And uh, I'm on Vimeo. Uh, but yeah, if, if they go to my website, uh, cmgross.com, they can just get a handle on everything, my work, whatever. Cool. Is there anything that you feel like you wanted to say that we haven't talked about? No, I think we covered it all, and uh, just want to thank you very much. It was terrific oh, well first of all thank you you've given me your time and i appreciate that oh very much. it's my pleasure cheryl thank you so much again for your time i really appreciate that if you guys want to see cheryl's work as she just said there towards the end be sure to go to cmgross.com that's c-m-g-r-o-s-s.com that's cheryl's portfolio site from there, you can get more information about the Z Factor, which is also on her Vimeo page. You can also find more information about greetings from Carpland. You can reach out to her. She's very open to giving people advice and paying the things that she's learned in her life forward. As we head into November, it's a good time to have faced the fears that were going on in our lives and start to become filled with gratitude about the fact that, as Cheryl said, she's living in the moment. She's being present. It's hard, I think, to have lots of gratitude if you're never fully yourself in the present moment in your own body because you're always somewhere else. My exercise to myself in November as we come into the time of the year where it's Thanksgiving is to be very thankful for the friendships that I have in my life that I sometimes don't spend as much time cultivating as I would like to, for the talents that we can continue to build in and of ourselves, for the ability that we have to get up and go and to live in a great city like New York or wherever you're from, to be one with our surroundings and enjoy where we are in that moment. Cheryl lives in Jersey City. She really enjoys the fact that she can be there. She can jet into the New York City anytime that she wants. I'm excited, guys, to bring some things forward to you that I've been working on in 2016 in the coming months. I just finished the first draft of a manuscript. It's being copy-edited as I sit here and speak. I am hopefully going to be introducing to you a line of t-shirts very soon that I'm working on with a friend, so stay tuned for that. If you're interested, like I said on the opening, in purchasing some photography as I sit here and continue to shill, do so at thewallbreakers.pixieset.com. I travel around New York City. I love to shoot photographs of my surroundings, and I thought, why not try to sell a few of these photos? They are filled with my love and my emotion, and I would be happy 
to give them to you. I will return with Breaking Walls episode number 45 in a few weeks. I'd like to give as much lead time to tell you who's going to be on that podcast. I know at this moment who it'll be. It's a she. That's all I'll say right now. I'm excited to tell you guys who that is in the coming days. November is my favorite month of the year. Selfishly, that's because my favorite holiday, Thanksgiving, is in the month. And my birthday is also in the middle of the month. So my birthday wish is that we all come together. Remember that we're not alone in this world. We've got each other's backs. If you just keep getting out there, guys, and keep breaking those walls, you'll find that on the other side of that wall is another road to keep traveling down filled with new experiences. So keep breaking those walls, guys. My name is James Scully. This has been Breaking Walls, episode number 44. And until next time, I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much. Thank you.